0: you got a Bible, go ahead and find the 130th Psalm. It's uh, right in the middle of your Bible. We're going to be there today. I want to talk to you today about Advent as core to healthy Christian spirituality. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've probably heard somebody mention that word Advent. Uh, You've heard pastors say it. You've heard worship leaders say it. And for some of you, you, you're just wondering, what the heck does that mean? Is Advent Christmas? Is it different than Christmas? Are we going Roman Catholic? Like, what's the point of this? Is this just another tradition that we're trying to fit into the church that's going to become dead and ritualistic? Is there any point in doing this? And what I want to do today is I want to talk about Advent and I want to unpack for us how essential this is to healthy spirituality and how big a part of being a follower of Jesus waiting with hopeful longing really is. The idea of Advent is an idea that the church has been celebrating in the four weeks leading up to Christmas in different pockets of Christianity for a really long time. Um, Advent really started becoming a widespread practice in the church about 1,500 years ago. And it comes from this Latin word, Adventus, which just means the arrival. And so the idea of Advent is that in leading up to the time we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that we sit in the hopeful longing for a savior as the people of God. So Advent's about waiting, it's about waiting. It's about waiting, but waiting in hope. And I think that this is really a big deal for us to talk about in this cultural moment as followers of Jesus in OKC. And the reason that's a really big deal is because we hate waiting right? This is, of all times in history, due to technology and the way that we do life, a moment where our waiting muscles, like our patience muscles, our ability to long and not despair is really weak inside the church and outside of the church. We want instant gratification and we get instant gratification in all kinds of different areas of our lives, right? Uh, If you're like me, You don't wait for episodes of shows to come out on television, you wait so that you can watch an entire season in one gluttonous sitting, right? That's like, that's the key to me being able to watch every episode of the West Wing, all six seasons, six times. True story, it's a dark part of my life that I'm not really ashamed of. We don't wanna wait, we don't wanna wait, we want it now. Um, It's interesting that in America, 96% of us have burned our mouths with scalding hot beverages repeatedly, right? It's like, you would think that that would be a one and done experience. I'll just let the coffee cool. We don't want the coffee to cool because by God, we want the coffee right now, even if it costs us our lips. Uh, We don't have to wait for fruit to grow right? You want a mango in winter? Somebody's got one somewhere. Let's fly it here. I will pay $7 for a mango if it's delicious. Uh, We're a culture that likes to consume information at about 140 characters at a time. And and I'm not going to go on a Twitter rant, but the way that we practice social media is affecting our capacity to patiently wait and sit and process information One writer, a guy named Peter Horry, he writes this. He says, here's a ridiculous fact. The Roosevelt Field Mall, the ninth largest mall in the nation, and by far the largest in New York, no longer contains a bookstore. Seriously, unless it's a cat picture heavy coffee table book in Urban Outfitters, you simply can't buy a book at New York's largest shopping mall this is true because who wants to actually sit down and have to process information that takes time and thinking? We want it now and we want it fast. Um, Many of us experience incredible anxiety if you text someone that you love and you get that horrible technological advance of knowing that they read it if they don't text you back within five minutes. Or am I the only one? It's like, I texted you, you read it, you're not responding. I'm questioning the dynamics of our relationship. Are we still friends? Do you care about me? Is everything going to be okay? Um, Anybody else in the room a big fan of Amazon Prime? Two-day delivery. My goodness. Two-day delivery is fantastic. And it's also part of the problem because we can't wait for stuff. We want it now. Um, I I feel like for me, my lack of patience manifests most ugly in airports, like, when I'm in an airport, any of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that was in me before arriving at the airport seems to just leave. I, I have to travel a lot. I hate airplanes. I hate airports. I hate lines. I hate customer service in airports. I hate talking to people in airports. While some pastors have stories of all the people they've led to Jesus on airplane flights, when I get on an airplane, I put on headphones because I want to communicate. Not available. Not available. And the reason is I just wanna land, man. I wanna get there, I wanna start life again. Um, I, I kinda of think that though the lady was a bit mentally unstable, the, the lady that recently jumped out of the emergency exit on the plane on the runway to get to the terminal, shh, I understand that, I, I feel that. I'm like, how long does it take you to get your bag out of the overhead compartment? Let me off this plane. And that's just part, that's just part of our culture, that we are impatient, we're in a hurry, We're rushing like crazy. We live fast. We live now. And we have very little capacity for waiting in hope. And the problem with that is that so much of the Christian life is what's called the life of faith. The life of faith. And what the life of faith means is that we have these wonderful, the Bible calls them exceedingly great and precious promises in Jesus. We have these great promises. We have hope in Jesus, but faith Faith demands hope because we don't yet see those promises fulfilled. We're longing, we're waiting, we're waiting and we're hoping and we have these great promises in Christ, but they're not promises that we can see with our eyes yet. They're promises that we're longing for and we're waiting for. So to be a follower of Jesus without the capacity to sit and wait, and not sit and wait in despair, but sit and wait in hopeful longing, that's not a secondary practice to healthy spirituality. That's at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus by faith in a world in which you can't see him. And so Advent, Advent is about waiting, waiting. It's about waiting with hopeful longing. It's about believing the promises of God. It's about anticipating all of the things that God said he's going to do and knowing that he's actually going to do those things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He wrote, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has been opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Like, do you feel the tension in that statement? It's the now and not yet. In many ways, it's like we're inside of this prison cell. We feel the decay of our bodies, we feel the reality of sin inside of us, that our desires are off and broken, and we feel the fracturing of our relationships, and yet in Jesus, that prison cell has been unlocked from the outside. It's now, we have redemption and hope and the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our promises. We have a new identity. We have a new family. We have so much now in Jesus, and yet there's so much that's not yet in Jesus. Like the kingdom's here, but it's not fully realized. Death has been defeated, but our bodies are still going to decay. Satan's been defeated through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, yet he still roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour we, we've been adopted and yet we're longing to see Jesus face to face and one day to be given new bodies that absolutely are free from the sin that we carry inside of us. And so as followers of Jesus, we, we do have an advent faith. We have a faith that banks on the great promises of God in Christ, that hopes in them and clings to Him, but we do so with longing We do so, we do so even in times of difficulty and pain where sometimes we're tempted to not believe that he's gonna keep his word to us. So with that in mind, what we're gonna do is I wanna take a minute and walk through the Cliff Notes version of the entire Old Testament. It's the 130th Psalm. If you wanna understand the heart of the Old Testament, a great place to go is this Psalm and we're gonna walk through it, talk about what it means and then I wanna give you three things that Advent invites you to long for to wait for with patience and with hope. So this is the 130th Psalm. I'm gonna read verses one through eight. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. I say that this is a Cliff Notes version of the whole Old Testament because what we have here is this God of mercy and grace that answers the cries of people in the depths and he gives them his word or his promise or his pledge that he's gonna meet them in their sin and brokenness and he's gonna bring his life and his mercy to bear in them and in creation. So a couple of things that are important here. First of all, this, this writer is... He's writing about crying to God from the depths, the depths. And I don't want us to make that something that's sort of Christian-y, sentimental, and lack the depth of what he's actually saying. When he writes about the depths, he's talking about the core human experience of being born in sin and being under the yoke of slavery to death. When he talks about the depths, this is a loaded term. It's not just kind of a bad day. Like when he talks about the depths, he's talking about what it's like to be an image bearer of God that was born into this world with sin inside of you and sin leading you to death and that death getting the last word of your life. The depths are not, the depths are not a self-rescue scenario right? Now, here, here's what I mean by that. Like, I just geek out on self-rescue stories, especially if it's about the outdoors. I've read way too much stuff about Shackleton, way too much stuff. Uh, I've never turned down an opportunity to watch the movie 127 Hours. If you've never seen that movie, it's great. You should watch it tonight. It's a great Christmas movie. Uh, <laughs> it, it's the true story of this hiker having a boulder fall on his arm, and to get out and survive, he literally amputates his arm with a dull pocket knife. It's just a heartwarming film about survival. Um, I love the documentary, Touching the Void, about mountaineering. It's fantastic. It's this awful true story of two guys in the Andes in 1985, I think, and uh, one of the climbers climbing the Andes, he slips and falls, and he breaks his leg. His buddy's trying to rescue him by lowering him down this cliff, and he runs out of rope. The cliff is steeper and taller than what he thought. And so this guy with a broken leg is literally dangling in the middle of a blizzard, hanging off of this rope. He can't get to the bottom and he can't climb back up. So after hours in this scenario, his buddy's like, well, we're both gonna die or he's gonna die. He cuts the rope, right? It's like, thanks, bud. Cuts the rope. The guy plummets over 150 feet into a crevasse. He's all busted up, and this documentary is the story of him belly crawling out of a crevasse over miles to get to base camp and get rescued. And those are great stories, man. They're gritty, like they're great. You have to admit they're great. Those are great stories. Because they kind of tell us like, your capacity for survival is greater than what you think. And they tell us like, if you're gritty enough and if you're willing to work hard enough, no matter what comes against you, you can get out of it. You can self rescue. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like that's just in our DNA as Americans. And I love those stories, but here's the problem. That is not the story of humanity. It's not the story of the most core brokenness of who we are, what this author calls the depths. The depths are not a self-rescue scenario. The depths that he's writing about is the, the pit of sin and the pit of death that you cannot climb out of. Sin, sin that separates us from God and death that makes everything meaningless unless death is answered and overthrown. Like, That pit is so difficult that we try to do all kinds of things to deal with it. Um, Some of us try to build a ladder out of the depths. So you feel the brokenness of your soul. You feel the longings of your soul that aren't answered. You know that there's something wrong with you in your quiet, honest moments. And many of us, what we do is we're like, okay, I'm going to get out of the depths with a ladder of of morality and religion right? So I'll build my ladder. I'll go to church. Um, I'll stop doing this list of things that are bad. I'll start doing this list of things that are good. And if I can do enough good deeds and stop doing enough bad deeds, then maybe, just maybe, I can get out of the depths on my own. And it'll be a great self-rescue story about how awesome and moral I am and how I'm one of the good guys. Now, the problem with that is the scripture is really clear. Your best effort to be a moral good person is so puny in light of the raw, radiant holiness of God. You can't build that ladder. Unless God moves into the depths, your religion and your morality will not rescue you. We live in a part of the world where everybody says, for the most part, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you ask, what does that mean? And it's, well, my dad's a Methodist or my grandma is a Baptist and I occasionally go to church and I feel better about myself. And if you weighed my good deeds and my bad deeds, then there's more good than bad. And the problem with all that is in light of God, in light of who he really is, in light of how holy he is, there's just too much that's fractured in our souls to ever get to him based on our good deeds. Others of us, we we don't try to build that moral ladder. We just try to redecorate the depths to make it a little bit more inhabitable, right? It's like, yeah, I'm in the depths, it sucks, but a flat screen TV in here would really warm it up, right? It's like, the depths are terrible, but I'm gonna make it as comfortable as I can. I'm gonna decorate it. And here's what I mean by that. It's like, yeah, my soul has these longings and there's this brokenness, but the right spouse will fix it. Or, Or... Like if I just find the one, that'll fix it. Or if I just make enough money, that'll fix it. Or if I just get the right retirement plan, that'll fix it. Or if I have the right, if I have the right circle of friends, if I'm in the right in group or the in-crowd, or if I have enough success in my career, all that is is just redecorating the depths. And the problem is, the problem is that no matter how much you redecorate the depths, you're still in the depths. You're still in the depths. Others of us were like, yeah, I'm in the depths, nothing I can do about it. I'm just gonna medicate myself so I don't feel how deep the depths really are. So that's addictions and compulsions and medicating with porn and medicating with alcohol and medicating with drugs and medicating with illicit sex. It's like, if I can just do enough stuff that makes me feel better or gives me a rush, I'm gonna feel better about being in the depths. But here's what happens in the story of God. What happens in the story of God is we could not get out of the depths. So in the coming of Jesus, hear me, he stepped into the depths. Jesus came to move towards us in our brokenness. The story of creation, the story of creation is that God made it good and we made it vile through our sin. And what does Jesus do? He leaves the heights, heaven itself, to come to the depths and to, to actually bear our sin and bear our burden and go to the cross and pay for what we could not pay for. So this author is writing from the depths, from the depths. And that's a place that all human beings, though we might not all use that language, all human beings are in. We need a rescuer. He then cries to the God of mercy and grace. Look what he says here in verse two. Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of, of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here's what he's saying. I'm in the depths, humanity's in the depths, and the solution to the depths is not, it's not a gradient scale where you have the good guys and the bad guys, and my hope is to be a good guy. Here's what he's saying. If God marks our sins against us, there are no good guys. There are no good guys. But God, but God, is not just a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. And the hope here, the hope here is that God in his promises is willing to do something about our brokenness and our sinfulness that we can't do so that we can receive grace. He then hopes in the word. Look at verse five. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. So I'm in the depths, I'm crying out to the God of mercy and grace because I can't self-rescue. And my hope is that this God who's spoken is gonna keep all of his promises because he's not a man that he should lie. And the promises that he's given us the word he's given us is about what he's going to do to demonstrate his goodness and his glory by him being the one that takes it upon himself to pursue and to rescue and to redeem the creation itself, including us. And then finally, he says, he uses this metaphor that's so helpful. He says that he's waiting like a watchman for the dawn. And a lot of us are like, well, what does that even mean? Every now and then I get up and see a sunrise, I try to avoid it. Like, but here's what he's saying, like, like a soldier that's on patrol. Like some of you, you guys and gals that are military folks, like you understand this because you've been on patrol. You've had an assignment before where you were in danger and you were watching in the middle of the night. And while everybody else was asleep, it was your job to keep your eyes open. And there was nothing that you longed for more than just for the sun to rise. He said, He's saying that his relationship with God is hoping in God's word like a watchman waiting for the dawn, just longing for God to fulfill his promises and for God to answer his longings with himself like a watchman waiting for the dawn. Night is dark, but dawn is a sure thing, is what he's saying, because God keeps his word. So what does this have to do with Advent? Well, it has a lot to do with Advent. Advent is the season of hopeful longing while we wait for the promises of God. And as we remember Advent as the people of God, there are three things that we're invited to hope for. Three things we're invited to hope for. The first thing we're invited to wait and long for is the coming of Jesus in the Incarnation. Now, Jesus has already come. He came 2,000 years ago. But Advent is this season where we get to remember the longings of the old covenant people of God and how those longings were met in Jesus coming in the fullness of time. One liturgy describes it well. This liturgy says this. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renewed their ardent desire for his second coming." Listen, like Advent is this time of the year where we look at the story of God in the Old Testament and we remember and rehearse the way that he unfolded his promise of a savior throughout that great, awesome scope of history. And he answered those prayers and those longings by keeping his word and sending Jesus to be born of Mary. Here's how it works in the Old Testament. Into the depths of sin, God brought a little tiny promise to our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. And they didn't really understand the depths of this promise, but here's what God said to them. When they had rebelled and death entered into the world and creation was fractured and they traded their light and glory for shame and they knew that they had really blown it and that nothing was gonna be the same again, instead of God wiping them out in that moment, here's what he does. He gives them this tiny little seed promise that wasn't fleshed out, that just gave them hope that he would do something. Here's what he does. In Genesis 3, he tells them, one day the seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now think of all that we know now, like if you've ever read the Bible, you you probably have an idea of what that means. The seed of the woman is Jesus. He was born of woman. He crushes the head of the serpent, sin, Satan, and death. Like he went to the cross and he came back from the dead and he has authority and power. But Adam and Eve didn't have that. Like, they didn't have the 66 books of the Bible that we had. All they had was in the midst of all of this sadness and all of this loss, God speaking one little tiny promise that brought a ray of hope into their lives. Well, time goes on, right? And we're introduced to God unfolding that promise in more detail to a man named Abram. Abram's a pagan, he doesn't know God, didn't care about God, he's worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, ancestors. And all of a sudden, God meets with this guy and here's what God does. He takes the promise and he adds more clarity to it. He tells Abram, one day you're gonna have an offspring through your line and that offspring is gonna bring blessing to the nations, Now, that word blessing in church culture, it's like less than meaningless for most of us. It's like a sentimental, trite, cheesy church word. Like if you have that grandma that you sneeze and she says, well, God bless you. Like we just think it's cutesy. But when God told Abram that he was going to bless the nations through his offspring, that word had power behind it. Because it doesn't just mean kind of make you feel better about life. Blessing is a restoration of thriving and flourishing between man and God and man and man. It's the restoration of shalom. It's the restoration of peace. It's like it's like everything that's broken and off, this offspring is going to make right. The stuff that's crooked, he's going to straighten. The stuff that's rotting, he's going to restore. He's going to bless the nations through Abram's offspring. Time goes on and and you can imagine all the stuff that Abram didn't know. He just had that one little promise to hold on to. Hundreds of years pass and we're introduced to his offspring in the land of Egypt. And they're slaves and they're being beaten and oppressed. And it's this horrible regime that is practicing genocide and killing the male babies. And it's just awful. And, And they're crying out to God and God raises up this leader named Moses to get them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And what's interesting is God gets them out of physical slavery, but in that moment, they still remain in spiritual slavery. Egypt's in their hearts, right? Like they don't love God. They don't want to obey God. They're enslaved internally, even though they're free externally. And God adds to the promise he made to Adam and Eve and Moses or Abraham by telling Moses that one day there's going to be a better Moses. And the better Moses is not just gonna lead God's people out of physical slavery, he's gonna lead people out of their spiritual slavery to sin and death. Time goes on, God adds more detail in the life of a guy named David, who is a king. And God tells David, long after you're dead, I'm gonna raise up your son after you, who's also going to be my son. Now it's starting to become a little bit more clear, isn't it? The son after you that's also gonna be my son is gonna be a better king than you are. He's gonna have a better kingdom and his kingdom is not gonna end. Well, then time goes on and we get all the prophets, right? And the prophets get more information from God on how God's gonna keep this promise to bring this offspring and bring restoration and blessing to the nations, They get stuff about the fact that he's gonna be a suffering servant. He's gonna be like a lamb that's slain. He's gonna be this child that's gonna be born and the government's gonna rest on his shoulders. And they get all of this prophetic additions to that one promise that God's been pulling through all of history to bring us to Jesus. And then something crazy happens. What happens after the last Old Testament prophet speaks? Anybody wanna take a guess? 400 years of crickets. Like the prophetic dial just gets cranked down to like zero. And there's no prophet speaking to the children of Israel. And here's what's happening. The world is going bananas. Like empires are coming and going. Greece is rising. Greece is falling. Rome is rising. The children of Israel are oppressed. And they're like, hey, do you think God still remembers his promise? Do you think he's still gonna keep his word to us? And then in that silence, after 400 years between the testaments of silence, all of a sudden, God, the Holy Spirit takes the prophetic dial and he cranks that mug to like 12. And a guy named John shows up and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he points to Jesus and says, there's the guy. Now, why am I telling you this? Because it's your story. It's your story as the people of faith. And as we look back on it, here's what you get to see. That from the depths, the people of God cried to him and here's what he does. He answers their prayers in Jesus. So as we celebrate Advent, we want to step back and remember that the incarnation didn't just happen at the beginning of history. God, promised, and he moved in history, and he sovereignly orchestrated the exact time and the exact place for Jesus to be born, that he might die for our sins and come back from the dead. Secondly, quickly, waiting for Jesus in Advent is not just about remembering his first coming. It's secondly, it's it's longing for Jesus to be formed in the church. And I'll do this really quickly. Here's one of Paul's most frequent prayers. A synopsis of it is in Galatians 4, 19. He says, my little children, talking to Christians in a church he helped plant, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That seems really weird, right? He's saying, I'm in anguish, like a woman trying to deliver a baby. That's how I feel about Christ being formed in you and in your little church, your little band of Christians. Now, he uses similar language throughout his writings, and other apostles do. And here's what we see, that when you meet Jesus and when churches get planted, they don't instantly come in full maturity. Like, when you met Jesus, when you met Jesus, there were all kinds of things wrong in your life after you became a Christian. And if you've been following Jesus for 40 years, there's all kinds of things still wrong in your life as a Christian. Can we be that honest with the new Christians in the room? Like you've been following Jesus a long time and there's still stuff. There's like wins and victories and areas of growth. And then there's things that are still kicking your rear. They're still owning you. There's still places where you're longing and hoping. And so what Paul prays is so helpful. He prays, may Christ be formed in the church. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. May the church, by God's grace, continue to grow in depth and in maturity to look a little bit more like Jesus next year than she looks like Jesus today. We, we've got a great, we've got a great mission statement as a church. I think it's, we want to multiply gospel communities that love God, love people and push back darkness. We believe that we want to do that. But can we just admit that so much of that is just aspirational. It's not reality. Like to a degree, we multiply at churches and community groups. To a degree, we love God. To a degree, we love each other. To a degree, we engage in mission and serve the poor and preach the gospel. But can we just admit, like there's so much room for growth in our church and in our lives. And what Advent does is Advent Advent invites us to not play games with each other and God, but to say, hey, we're a work in progress. We're hoping and we're longing for more maturity. I've been following Jesus for 20-plus years, 20-plus years, and there's still places in my life where I'm like, "Oh, that again?" Like, I can preach Jesus on a Sunday and sing these songs and pray these prayers and believe it with all my heart, and on a Monday, feel like God's abandoned me and forgotten me and he's not even there. <laughs> Some of you are experiencing this in your marriage. It's the longing for Christ to be formed. It's like, my marriage is not what I dreamed it would be. It's not what I hoped it would be. It certainly doesn't look like what Paul writes about when he talks about marriage, that it's this picture of the gospel and full of beauty and grace. So Advent is the season where instead of pretending like it's all right now, we, we admit there's some stuff that's not yet, that we're a work in progress. And we stop and we pray and we ask God in hope to finish what he started, knowing that he will. Today, I want you to join me in in just being honest with like, I hope, I hope that in 12 months, I love Jesus more than I do today. I hope in 12 months, I'm a little bit more mature than I am today. I hope in 12 months that some of the sins that are owning me today, I'll have more victory over in 12 months. I'm hoping that some of the relationships that don't have a lot of grace and beauty in them today in 12 months can be relationships of more grace. What is that? That's longing for Christ to be formed. That's Advent, Jesus come and move and speak and lead. And then lastly, Advent is this longing for the coming of Jesus in the incarnation, this longing for Jesus to be formed in us and in our church. And then lastly, and this is so important, it's longing for Jesus to return, longing for Jesus to return. We, we stand in this weird tension where the kingdom of God is now, Jesus is never gonna be more king than he is today. He's alive, he came back from the dead. Over 500 people saw him at one time. It's a historical, reliable fact that he came back from the dead and people saw him and eyewitnesses were around during the writings of the scripture. Like Jesus is alive, he ascended into heaven, he sat at the right hand of the father. His name is above every name that can be named. He defeated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death, he overcame the world. All of that is so true and it's real and it's now. And we have the first taste of it in things like salvation. Getting new hearts is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. We get a taste of it anytime God heals somebody. And isn't it awesome that sometimes he just breaks in and does miracles and heals people. We get a taste of it. We get a taste of it when there's racial reconciliation. We get a taste of it when justice comes to cities but can we also admit that though he's defeated sin, Satan, and death, and his kingdom is here, it ain't fully here. Parents burying kids, that's an evidence of the kingdom not being fully here. Cancer. Depression. Crippling Anxiety. Turning on the news and seeing the horrific things people are doing to each other all over the world. That's an evidence that the kingdom's not fully here. Children's hospitals? Walk through a children's hospital, you'll long for the return of Jesus. Because here's what's so crazy about our Savior He didn't die and then rise from the dead just to rescue and redeem your soul, He did rescue and redeem your soul. But he died and rose from the dead that he might be the firstborn, the firstborn among many brethren of a new creation. And there'll be a day where he returns and this creation will be replaced with a new creation. And here's what's amazing. Everything that's so wrong in history is going to be straightened out through the return of Jesus Christ. Everything that's fractured and broken and ugly and vile, everything that obscures the glory of God, everything that weighs us down in our sin, all of that gets removed when he returns. Romans eight twenty-two says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit we groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Advent is this internal cry, come Lord Jesus. Now, God's patient. If Jesus came back next Tuesday, there'd be a lot of people that aren't prepared to meet him that might just be prepared to meet him in 12 months. For 2,000 years, the church has longed for his return. It's very likely that we'll have another 2,000 years of longing for his return. He might come back in a year. He might come back in 5,000 years. We don't know. But we do know that the heart of following Jesus is this heart for things are not what they should be and they're not what they will be. And Jesus is the hope and the answer. And he's promised that he's gonna do that. So we believe. As we close, I wanna leave you with these words of probably my favorite Advent hymn. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Here's another way of putting it the God who got into the pit to get us out of the pit. The God who stepped into the depths to be with us there and rescue and redeem us there. And ransom captive Israel. When you read Israel as a follower of Jesus, don't disconnect that because guess what? Israel are all the people of faith that have trusted in Jesus. It belongs to you that mourns in lonely exile here. Did you know that you are a stranger and an exile in your time on this planet? This is why it's so difficult to have that sense of settling and that sense of home because ultimately this is not your home. You are an exile. You're a stranger here. Until the Son of God appears, rejoice, rejoice, not longing in despair, but longing in hope because of his first coming, his cross, and his resurrection, longing for him to finish what he started. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thou, dayspring. Dayspring is just a beautiful way of saying the dawn. Jesus is the day spring. He's the dawn that brings light and life and that dawn has started and that dawn is not fully here, but it will be here someday. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent or thy arrival here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus will destroy sin. That'll be a great day. Jesus has defeated death. And though our bodies are going to decay because his resurrection is ours now by faith, there's a day where you're going to get a new body and death will not get the final word. Satan was defeated through the cross and resurrection. There'll be a day where he is utterly destroyed. He will no longer roam about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour.